morning, CBC. Uh, my name is Mike. I am one of the pastors here. Um, the passage that Melissa read for us just a little bit is from Exodus 40, which is where we are today. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Exodus 39 and 40, obviously we're at the back end of our uh, series in Exodus, which Milt will be wrapping up next week. But before we dive into that, um, this past November, I hit kind of one of those milestone birthdays where I turned 40. I know you're thinking to yourself, there's no way. Like, no. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, I thought you were at least 50. Uh, no, uh, no, it turned 40. But like so many of those milestone birthdays, those are natural times where you maybe kind of look back and do some self-inventory, maybe at some previous milestone. So turn 40, I'm thinking back to when I turned 35 or even when I turned 30 and looking back and hopefully seeing the ways that God has, has grown me because life's a journey, right? And, and hopefully we're on this journey with God and hopefully God is growing us and maturing us. So uh, looking back on 30, uh, I just, I look back and then I think about the things I was so passionate about and so convicted of and so convinced of that 40-year-old Mike is looking back going, you fool, you fool, and lovingly so saying that too. Uh, but the, the, the decade that has passed and, and growing in marriage and having kids, but also walking through, you know, successes and failures and all the kind of uh, scores of things that happen in life, I, I would hope that I wasn't the same person at 40 that I was at 30. I hope in a, in a good way I could look back at 30-year-old me and be like, you know, you fool, you, you idiot. Uh, I look back at 20-year-old Mike, and I'm surprised I made it to 40-year-old uh, with any friends, and definitely he shouldn't have had a wife. Uh, I don't know what happened there. Um, but honestly, life is a journey, like we said, right? Uh, and, and hopefully, again, that journey is with God leading us. And as he's changing us and growing us over this journey and over the time, one way to think about it in light of what we're studying in Exodus might be, he's kind of hopefully uh, in growing us, setting us free from some things, setting us free from some immaturity or selfishness or sinfulness or free from wasting our lives pursuing false idols and false hopes and false promises in the world. And as he's maybe growing us by setting us free from some things, maybe setting us free by uh, setting us free to some things, specifically the liberating truth of himself, setting us free to know him more deeply, to know ourselves more honestly and fully, to know the abundant life that comes through abandoning ourselves and obeying the love and grace of God. So our lives are on that journey. So one last side note, if you're with me, you know, you look back on, you know, five years ago, you or 10 years ago, and you think, what a fool. Just let me ask you one more question. What is 10 years from now you going to say about today? Right? Uh, Honestly, when we look back on this journey of life, we should look back and be grateful if God is growing us, but it should be uh, with humility and without getting a big head. Because 10 years from now, you will be looking back at today saying, you fool, you fool. Uh, and again, saying that jokingly, but also seriously, because we're not as mature as we think we are. We're not as together as we think we are. We're not as wise and all-knowing as we think we are. So we could look back and look forward on this journey with humility. So we are at the end of the book of Exodus, like I said, and, and we've been on a journey in this book together. Um, again, Milt will bring the final message of Exodus next week, kind of a bigger recap uh, over more fully the story of Exodus. But today we're looking at Exodus 39 and 40, and just to put out there, looking at these two chapters together, we're also going to be looking at some thematic stuff throughout the book, so we won't be diving in specifically, like parsing some verses here. But stick with me uh, as we are, are going to talk about this journey 
uh, that uh, the people have been on and hopefully us as well. Uh, because through, from September to now, we have been walking through this journey with God's people. From chapter 1 to chapter 40, a lot has changed within them. God's people are not who they were when we started this series to now. Uh, and they're not who they will be as their journey beyond the book of Exodus will continue. But in studying Exodus in the transforming journey of God's people, I have to ask myself, am I the same as I was when we started this series? Have I changed and grown along with the journey of seeing God do that through his people? So as we look here towards the end of the book in Exodus, we ask not only how are God's people different here in chapters 39 and 40 than verse 1, but we need to ask ourselves the honest question, are we any different in this journey that we've been on? So when I think about the journey through Exodus, and there's lots of themes and lots of words that we could pull out from this entire book, but one of the words that continually speaks to me when I think about this entire story of the book of Exodus is this word dwell, that the, the people of God were on a journey, you might say, of dwelling with God. And that's the title of this series, A Journey of Dwelling. So what comes to mind when you hear the word dwell or dwelling? Uh, probably one of two things. The first thought when you think about dwelling, it's probably what comes to mind is actually the primary use of that word in Exodus. And it has to do with dwell in terms of the physical place that you are, where your body is, the place where you live, where you abide, where you reside. We think of dwelling as our home, right? Literally, you might think of your address. Your address, that's your dwelling. That's where you dwell, the place where you are physically. So in this journey through the story of Exodus from the beginning to now, we see the journey of God's people being pulled out of one dwelling, a foreign land, enslaved, into a new dwelling, a new promised land, a new home, this journey of dwelling. But more importantly, we, we see it's not as much about God's people dwelling somewhere, but God himself dwelling somewhere with them. It's not just the people's journey of dwelling, but God's journey of dwelling, which we will talk about more in a second. So, so one way, when we think about the word dwell, dwell, we think about physically being present or at home. But the second way we think about dwelling, and maybe this came to mind with you, is not so much of a physical place or home, but what we dwell on. What captures the attention of our hearts and minds. So just like a physical place where our body lives, it's where our hearts our minds, our imaginations, our hopes, and our fears live. What we dwell on is what we think about, what we dream about, where our hearts set up home. So if one form of dwelling is where we physically live in our bodies, another way to think about dwelling is where we spiritually live in our hearts. And both of these uses are important, as we'll see today, to understand who God is and who we are and how he works in and through us, specifically what it means to live for what he's made us for. Because, as we'll see, God has taken his people with him on this journey of dwelling in Exodus. So he is, he is drawing them closer by his presence with them but also drawing closer to, their, to him in their hearts. So let's look at that together. So as we begin, as, as again, we're going to be talking kind of broad strokes, strokes here through the scripture. Let's remind ourselves of this journey of God dwelling with his people throughout the book of Exodus. So uh, Exodus opens up, if you remember, with the plight of God's people in Egypt. 
They had been in Egypt for over 400 years and were under the oppressive slavery of Pharaoh. And at this point in the story, you can imagine being an Israelite, it feels as though God is, at best, dwelling at a distance. In fact, in Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25, we hear their heartache and their cry for God's deliverance. It says, During those, day, those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and he knew. Can you imagine, again, being that captive Israelite and, and praying and wandering and groaning out to God? Where are you? Are you near? Are you listening? Will you rescue us? This unseen, unheard God. Well, we know in the story, then God raises up his servant Moses, his chosen leader. And in chapter 3, we get the dwelling of God with his people one step closer. You remember first, uh, Moses went up to the burning bush and he hears the voice of God speaking to him. God was here. God was listening. God would rescue. And he begins to show his nearness by speaking to Moses directly. But not only that, God moves even closer by giving Moses a name. He is Yahweh, the Lord. I am who I am. And so with Moses, we read in chapters 3, verses 11 and 12, it says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? And he, God said, but I will be with you. So the step closer, I will be with you. God dwelling even closer. And then we know God moves and speaks through Moses and his brother Aaron, and he moves through the plagues and signs. And then we see a step even closer of God to his people as God leads his people out of the land of Egypt, uh, called the Exodus, toward the Red Sea. In chapters uh, 13, verses 21 and 22, it says this, And the Lord went before them, his people, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. We see the Lord now is going before them in, in nearness, in presence, in dwelling in the pillar of cloud and fire. And we know God delivered his people from that charging Egyptian army. And he continued them on their journey of freedom. But they were still slaves to sin and lies. So God takes even more steps closer to them. He gives them his holy law and speaks to Moses on the mountain. Exodus 19 verse 20. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up to literally meet with the Lord. So with thunder and lightning and smoke and power, God comes closer and dwelling among his people. And as the people leave that mountain to journey through the wilderness, God continues his journey of dwelling by taking even more steps with him by establishing this thing he calls the tent of meeting, where the pillar of cloud would descend when Moses would go to meet with God. Exodus 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside camp. Again, God meeting and dwelling with his people, moving closer to them. And now we have this tent 
outside of the camp where God would meet with his people. But then we get to kind of the thrust of the back part of Exodus, the culmination of even the last two chapters that we're in right now, of God moving from outside of the camp to inside by making the tabernacle. Moving the tent of meeting literally from outside the camp to the tabernacle in the middle of the people. God actually commanded this back in Exodus 25, as you see here, says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And then we see the fulfillment of this command in our passage today, in uh, our chapter today, in chapter 40, verse 34, and I'll put it on the screen, is this, the culmination. When the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You see this story, this journey of dwelling, God's desire to dwell and be among his people, to dwell in their midst. And think about it again. Imagine being one of those Israelites through this journey where we start this unseen, unheard, distant God to looking up now and seeing the tabernacle and the midst of your camp and the glory of God and the presence of God and the word of God in your midst right there, that journey of dwelling. God dwelling in their midst. So why is this important? Why, why are we talking about this? Why are we bringing up this theme of dwelling? Because it's not just the story of Exodus. It's not even just the story of you and us in this room. It is the story of everything. Do you remember uh, the book that precedes Exodus, Genesis, at the very beginning of that book, when God is making everything? He creates the entire universe, everything in it, the world, and it is good, and his crowning achievement of creation is what? His image bearers, us. He says it's good, it's very good. And when he made us, we dwelt with him. In his presence, no hindrances, no fears, no hiding, no shame, walking, being, living, alive with God. God created us with the purpose to be with us, to dwell with us, and us with him, to enjoy him. So what changed? Our desire to dwell with him. See, Adam and Eve thought they could do it on their own. That they didn't need God to live, to be happy, to be free. And so they turned from God to live without him. And that's the heart of our sin, right? Is looking to God saying, I don't need you and I don't even really want you. I can do it on my own. Well, how did that work out for Adam and Eve? How's that working out for us? Not so good. You see, because of that sin and death and oppression and slavery and pain and heartache and the darkness, of this world of sin came into the world, a world trying to live without God, trying to not dwell with God. But God's heart of love for us, his desire to restore that relationship and to dwell with us is so strong that he won't allow even our sinfulness and our hardness of heart to keep his pursuing love from making a way to be with us, to dwell with us. So God's journey of dwelling again with us, of restoring that relationship, we see it here alive in the book of Exodus. And again, in Exodus from chapter 1, all the way here to the back end of the book, chapter, chapters 39 and 40, we reach the book's climax, if you see here. If you look, chapter 39, in the making of the priestly garments for the tabernacle, and then in 40, the construction and completion of the tabernacle. It is 
the climax of Exodus. And the making of the tabernacle here in, in, in chapter 40, that tabernacle literally is the same word for dwelling. God dwelling with his people in the midst of his people. That tabernacle that's made here is God telling his people, I've not abandoned you. I've not forgotten you. I've not kept myself from you, but I am here with you and I want you here with me. Again, you could argue that it's the culmination of the purpose of the book of Exodus. When God said his heart uh, in chapter 29 and 45, verses 45 and 46 was this. He says this, Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So when we think about this word dwell and we think about the building of the tabernacle that uh, is in uh, chapter 40, I honestly don't think I pause enough here to really think about the implications of what's going on. God wants to be with us, even when, especially when, we don't deserve to be with him. His loving pursuit of dwelling with us is stronger than even our rebellious hearts to run from him. So that means whatever you've done, whatever I've done, whatever horrible, selfish, hurtful, hateful thing, none of that is stronger than our God's desire to be with us. The tabernacle constructed in the chapters 39 and 40 screamed to God's people, his undeserving people, in the midst of their camp, that the holy God of creation wants to be with them and with us and will move heaven and earth to make it happen. And I want you to consider that right now, where you are right now in your seats, like literally this moment, there is a holy God who is deserving of every fiber of our praise and our devotion, who is so good and so powerful and so great, we cannot even begin to imagine his worth and value. I read a quote recently, uh, but I, I honestly can't remember who wrote it or where I saw it. Um, but I love it. I think I got it up here. Yeah, this quote says, God is not just bigger than you think. He's bigger than you can think. Now, I love that so much, I'm going to say it again. God is not just bigger than you think. He's bigger than you can think. And this God has his heart set on being with us. So much so that he is willing to extend such a love and mercy and grace in forgiving our sin that he comes to us to dwell with us. This tabernacle, this dwelling of a holy God in the midst of his sinful people is a sign of his life-changing grace. The God who is bigger than we can think, who is holier than we can imagine, who is more worthy than we can fathom and is more graciously loving than we can dream. And he wants to dwell with us. And for God's people in Exodus, when they realized and they could see that God dwelling in their midst, his greatness cannot then help but dwell in their hearts. And that is what we see in response to the people. So again, if you've been with us, if you go even back to chapters 35 up until this point, 
We see their devotion in the building of the tabernacle and the holy elements for worship. We see this God who is dwelling in their midst begin to dwell in their hearts in this new way. So again, I know we're not driving, uh, diving too deep into specific verses here, but if you just kind of glance with me at Exodus 39, just, just do a, a, a big picture, you'll see that this chapter is devoted to the faithful fulfilling of making those holy garments that the priests would wear when they go into the tabernacle to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. And if you've been with us in this series, if you kind of read through there about all the details of all the things that they're doing and all the things they're building, you're probably thinking, man, this is like super repetitive. Like, haven't I read this somewhere? Because it's like almost literally word for word, some of these chapters are like the exact same descriptions in previous chapters. And you're thinking, man, this is redundant or man, this is repetitive. And if you're thinking that, you're right. It is. And that's the point. Because God is spelling out his detailed, holy instructions for his people in creating this place for him to dwell. And guess what? They obey. They obey fully. They obey completely down to every detail. In fact, if you look, uh, depending on what version of Bible you may have, if you have the ESV or maybe another version that has this section broken up in paragraphs, do a quick look at the, uh, this par- uh, the paragraphs, specifically the last sentence of every paragraph. And you're going to see a repeated phrase. In fact, 10 times in chapter 39, you're going to see this phrase, they did this, they did this, as the Lord commanded Moses. And if you were to flip over into chapter 40, where they actually construct the tabernacle, you're going to see a similar phrase another seven times. My point is this. In two chapters, nearly 17 times, the phrase is, and they did as the Lord commanded. In construction, constructing the garments and the tabernacle, they were absolutely doing it with a wholehearted, full obedience to God. And again, if you were here last week and you heard uh, Pastor Milt speak from chapter 35, when they begin the invitation to collect the things that they needed to build these uh, garments in, in the tabernacle, you remember God invites the people to give to contribute to the, to the needed elements for making the tabernacle. And not simply uh, like the wood and the gold and the silver and the yarn, but also contributing their gifts and skills and talents to work and make the tabernacle that's here in chapter 40 and all the holy objects. So like Milt said last week, God gave an invitation for them to give their time and their talents and their treasures to, to partner with God in what God was already doing among them. So you remember in chapter 35, the invitation from God goes out to says, whoever is of a generous heart was invited to give. And that everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him brought a contribution. And they gave. And if you remember, they gave so much. Moses was like, we got enough. You don't have to give anymore. And they served. And they built and they constructed out of full, obedient hearts. And again, we are seeing the results of that fullness of of obedience and them constructing a place by God's command where he would dwell among them in the tabernacle in 39 and 40 years. But the question, how? How does this happen? How does a culture break out among a people so that they are so overjoyed and so passionate about responding to an invitation from God to give that they pour out their treasures, they clear out their calendars, and they give up their lives to serve? Because, as someone incredibly wise and incredibly famous once said, 
Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You heard somebody whisper Jesus. Yes, yeah, good. That's good. Yeah, at least you're paying attention. Um, what Jesus was saying there was the work of our hands follows the captivation of our heart. In other words, you and I live for what we dwell on. Now, I want to be clear. Um, the uh, Israelite people here in Exodus were far from sinless, okay? They're far from steadfastly mature, still had a long way to go in their spiritual growth journey. In fact, if you're familiar with the story, you know that this generation didn't even get to go into the promised land because of their lack of trust in God. But here in this moment at the end of Exodus, we see a glimpse of their growth in their journey because what their hearts were dwelling on in this moment, what their minds were looking at, stirred them up and then to obey with a joyful, wholehearted obedience. So the question is what at this moment had captured their hearts when they would look out they would see a rescuing god a god who had rescued them from the oppression and slavery of the egyptians but a god who was rescuing them from the oppression and slavery of their very sin a providing God when they looked out. A God that not only provided uh, splitting of seas for them to escape, but would provide for them water and food, what they needed. And also provided them this pillar of cloud and fire to give them instruction and protection and direction. They saw a holy God. From the terror on the mountaintops, if you remember, to the commands of the temple instruction and giving his law to show them who he was and who they were meant to be. This God is serious about goodness and about justice and purity and righteousness and holiness. They saw a gracious God. To come and rescue them at all, not to wipe them out, especially with that golden calf incident, right? But even, even to set up this way for them to dwell with him. This gracious God where sin cannot be minimized or compromised, but dealt with in a way that was bringing about the redemption and restoration of God, literally dwelling with his people. Hear this, that even the breaking of his law was not the breaking of his love for them. God is telling his people, this gracious God, I love you, I want you, and I'm coming to be with you. And certainly they saw much, much more in God, but they also saw when they could see the construction of this tabernacle, a present God dwelling with them. Not the distant God of unanswered prayers, seemingly unanswered prayers that they couldn't see, but now a present God dwelling with them. And when that God that they see not only dwells in your midst physically, but begins to dwell in your heart spiritually, that transforms who you are. It changes your heart. It changes what you think about. It changes what you dream about. It changes your imagination and fears and hopes. Dwelling on God changes what you treasure. You treasure the one who's clearly treasuring you. And what you treasure in your heart is shown by what you treasure with your life. Like we said, in other ways, your hands will follow your heart. Another way, we live for what we dwell on. 
So we stop here and we ask ourselves the hard question. We ask ourselves right now, what is it? What is it right now that has captured your heart? What do we dwell upon in our lives right now? Well, again, we can reverse it. If you want to know what's captured your heart, if you want to know what you dwell on, look at your hands. Look at your life. I look at my hands. Look at my life. What do you live for? What do you spend your time doing? What do you spend your gifts and talents building? What do you spend your treasures and your money acquiring? Do we spend our lives pursuing the same treasures that our unbelieving watching world does? Or do our lives portray living for a treasure of heavenly worth and eternal beauty? We know what we dwell on when we look at what we live for. Okay, so then one more follow-up question is, Okay, if we want, if we want to have that kind of abundantly rich and joyful uh, life of impact, of this wholehearted obedience to God that we kind of see here in a glimpse of uh, the obedience of the Israelites at the end of Exodus, if we want that, okay, well, what then should we be dwelling on in our hearts? Well, let's go back to what I talked about, that story of God progressively moving, the journey of dwelling he has with his people. Because Exodus 40 is not the end of the story of God's dwelling with his people. We have the tabernacle in their midst where God would dwell, but that's just a shadow, a shadow of a greater dwelling, a greater tabernacle that God would give his people. Read uh, along with me on the screen. You can just follow along um, as the uh, Apostle John helps us see what the tabernacle was showing. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 and 14, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was not in the beginning, uh, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What John is saying here is that the story of God's dwelling, his journey of dwelling with us, didn't stop in the tabernacle in the midst of the camp. It didn't even stop when they built the temple in the middle of the city. No, this was always pointed to something that was almost unimaginable, unfathomable. That God's journey of dwelling was going to be about sending his very son. Jesus, the word, God in flesh to dwell physically with us. And we've noted before in this passage that the word in here in, verse, in chapter 14, or sorry, verse 14, that word dwelt can literally be translated tabernacled. John is being very clear that just as the Israelites had a tabernacle in the middle of the camp that the glory of the Lord fell upon, we have a greater tabernacle in our midst that the glory of the Lord is showing through, and that's Jesus. He is the fulfillment of Exodus 40. So it goes back to us and that question of how we live those lives of impact and joyful obedience. Well, the first thing we got to do is notice God's journey of dwelling and the length he was willing to go in order to bring us back to himself. To dwell with us, Jesus, God's full and final tabernacle for us, the full and final bridge between us and God, heaven and earth. Jesus is God's full and final sacrifice for our sins. 
becoming our sin and suffering in our place on the cross and giving us his record of perfect righteousness and thereby removing the barrier of our sin that keeps us from dwelling with God. And Jesus, our full and final dwelling place, he is our home. And as St. Augustine would famously confess, as we've shared it before, he says, you, God, have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. So this transforming life change of obedience has to come first from seeing the fullness of God and dwelling with, it, dwelling with us in Jesus. Literally, God in flesh among us to take our sin and bring us back to God. But I'm going to take it one step even further. Because even with this, we ask ourselves, okay, Mike, like, I know Jesus. I know the gospel. I believe in Jesus. Yes, my life has been forever changed and transformed by Jesus. But I still don't find myself with this wholehearted life of obedience to Jesus. Why is that? Have you ever been there? The answer is yes. <laughs> because you are there. <laughs> so am I. Not living up to the full obedience that God commands and deserves. Because the Bible tells us that while one day, one day, we will be fully and finally free of the temptations and trials of sin, but today we still wrestle with sin and fall short. So when we find ourselves facing the truth that we don't obey Jesus with the kind of wholehearted devotion he deserves, what do we do? Or, or maybe that's not your case, but maybe your case is a little bit different. Well, I'll put it this way. I don't know about your background. Like, I don't know about uh, if you grew up in a church or grew up in religion uh, or whatever your kind of journey story is like. But I do know for all of us, no matter our background, that the default of the human heart when faced with our own ineptitude and insufficiency and our own even guilt, our own default mode of the human heart is try harder. Be better. Clean yourself up. Prove yourself. Earn your spot. And that can be true even for us as Christians when we know we're not living up to what God commands. We think, okay, I've just got to be better. I've just got to try harder. I've just got to do more. And maybe that's one way you feel if you know you're not living it up. But maybe you have a different mindset. And it's, I call it kind of the gospel conundrum. Let me put it this way. It's when you're not even saying, I want to be more faithful. I want to be more obedient. But rather, you say, why do I even need to be wholeheartedly obedient? If it's true that I'm saved by grace and not by works, then why do I need to worry about being obedient and living my life according to God's commands if I'm saved either way? So maybe you're saying uh, you feel like this inadequacy, inadequacy because you're not living up to God's demands or an apathy because you're saying, why do I even need to do that? What's the answer when we find ourselves in either one of those camps to having a life transformed to being wholeheartedly obedient to God like we see here in the end of Exodus? and throughout scripture and throughout the history of our faith. What do we need to do in that moment? Well, it's not what we think. It's not that mode of the heart that says, try harder, be better, do more, clean yourself up. No, God tells us when we're not living the way we ought, it's not primarily an obedience issue, but a memory issue. We've forgotten who we are. The Apostle Peter would put it this way. Let me explain. So in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, he's going to list out these virtues as we see that should mark us 
as believers, as faithful believers. So 2 Peter 1, 5-9, I'll read it for you. Peter says this to, to believers. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But hear this. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. See, we don't have time to kind of parse in detail all these uh, godly qualities that Jamarcus, but did you see what Peter said? So Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes in verse 9, if you find yourself not living up to these qualities, not living up to the full wholehearted obedience that God requires, do you know why? Well, is it because you're not trying hard enough or because you're not strong enough in your faith? No, he says here, you know why? You've forgotten who you are. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are brand new. You are cleansed. You are forgiven. You are his. You're not a sinner who needs to try harder to please God. You're his child, a saint forgiven who is struggling with sin right now. And you're suffering from momentary spiritual amnesia. You've forgotten your gospel-made identity in Christ. Peter is saying the key to more faithful obedience doesn't begin with try harder, but remember more. What does this have to do with what we're talking about? Because remembering more is another way of saying you need to remember and dwell on the truth. The truth of the gospel in your heart and mind. It's remembering your new identity in Jesus. Dwelling on Jesus and remembering who you are in him. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Therefore, since we have, are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, what's the focus of our heart for this wholehearted godly living? Looking to Jesus. Dwelling on Jesus. Again, the Apostle Paul would say it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Hearkening back to Moses, he said, And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. What's the focus of our transformation? Beholding what? The glory of the Lord. The intentional, consistent, purposeful putting of Jesus at the center of our life's focus. The captivation of our hearts. The focus of our minds. The stirring of our imaginations. The concentration of our hopes. Dwelling on Jesus. That is where the beginning of a wholehearted life of obedience starts. Because when we sit in awe and amazement of the greatness of Jesus, the magnitude of his beauty and worth and love for us, it changes his commands for us. What we might consider just rote duty and begrudging compliance, it transforms that into joyful acts of worship 
to our loving and worthy King. And when we find ourselves not living in that wholehearted obedience, it's not firstly an obedience problem. It's a memory problem. We've forgotten who we are in him. So the answer, remember, look at Jesus, remember the gospel, remember who God is and who you are in him. Dwell on Jesus. So just like God's people here in Exodus, we are on a journey with God, a journey of dwelling. And I pray that when we look back, we're not the same as we are now, and we're not the same as we will be. But this happens when we see that we serve a God who wants to be with us, dwelling in our midst. And when we see this God pursuing us in his love, it moves in us to dwell on him in our hearts transforming us to live changed lives of joyful obedience to him. And the object of our heart's dwelling is the wondrous beauty of Jesus, God's full tabernacle dwelling in and among us, his love to take our record of sinful guilt on himself on the cross and give us his record of perfect obedience. And his resurrection, his new life is proof of our salvation and our new life dwelling with God now and forever. And so as we wrap up, as I was studying this and reading um, one commentator, uh, one commentator said of the book of Exodus here at the end, the story of Exodus begins in slavery and ends in worship. And the truth is, so does our story. All of us started our lives being slaves to our own sin, like Adam and Eve in the garden, running from God in selfishness to find our meaning and value and worth in this world apart from him and deserving of the condemnation and death that that brought. But this God, who dwells with us, our holy Redeemer, Jesus, came into our world to dwell with us by setting us free through taking our condemnation and death for us. And our old self died on the cross with him that day, and a new self with a new heart rose with him the moment we believe. And he dwells with us now, in our presence, in our midst, as the body of Christ, transforming us into those joyfully obedient, wholehearted followers of him. And one day, those of us who have been made new by trusting in Jesus will be all together with him. In the picture of the new heaven and new earth where God says there will be no more tabernacle, there will be no temple, we won't have any need because God himself, Jesus, will be there with us. So I want to close with a few questions. The first question I ask is, do you know this God who came for you, who wants to dwell with you? Do you know Jesus, the tabernacle, our God with us, who took our sin on the cross and rose again in victory over sin, death, and its curse? And if you do know Jesus, let me ask you this, beloved, what are you doing to fight to keep him as the focus of your dwelling? This world is full of distractions. We have an active enemy that wants to take our eyes and put them anywhere but Jesus. What are we doing to actively fight to put Jesus at the center of our hearts and minds captivation? And treasure him above all things. And then the last question, as we do that, in that treasuring of Jesus, in that dwelling on him, what obedience is he calling you to now? What part of your heart is he saying, trust me? I love you, and I'm inviting you into the joy of what I'm doing in the world. What sin do you need to give over to him? What contribution is he calling you to make? 
because God came to dwell with his people so that not only we could dwell with him, but that we might also dwell on him and in doing so live radically transformed lives of obedience for his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we see the book of Exodus in the culmination here at the end, your great journey to be with your people. And Lord, we see even the fullness of that in Jesus, our full and final tabernacle, our full and final sacrifice, a love so unimaginable that to get a glimpse of it would transform everything about us. Lord, I pray as a people here, we would be a people who have been transformed by that love, have been transformed by that grace, and you would raise us up as a family to live radically different lives of obedience, showing the world the deep, beautiful, eternal, glorious treasure of our hearts, Jesus, as shown through the radically different lives that we live. We thank you for your loving grace and mercy. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.